This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Today, a Veterans Day edition of our show. And we'll begin with the story of American service men and women who are buried overseas, more than 200,000 of them, in places like France, Italy, and the Netherlands. Jeremy Hubbard traveled to some of these cemeteries to tell the stories of Coloradans buried abroad. He is evening anchor at KDVR-TV, and his new documentary is called Where Heroes Rest. And Jeremy, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Appreciate it. How is it that Americans were buried, even memorialized abroad, as opposed to being returned to the United States? I think it was just logistics. Uh, when you think about um, World War One, World War Two, and the volume of people who died, I think 400,000 U.S. casualties in World War Two, and it was just hard to get them all home. So back then, there was this option. Uh, families could either have them brought home, which was sort of a logistical nightmare. It took forever. They were brought on boats, usually. Now they're flown home pretty fast, within just a few hours. But back then, it was hard. And so I think a lot of families just opted for the guys to stay there. And in some cases, the soldiers themselves, before they went, told their families, look, if I die over there, I want to stay over there. So that's how these cemeteries came to be. Why would they want to stay over there? I think there was just this notion that um, they were with their brothers who they'd fought with. And in typically in, in war up leading up to World War II in Korea, that's how we did it. You know, if they fell on the battlefield, they were just buried right there where they died. So that's kind of the way it was. These cemeteries that are run by the United States yeah. in, in these foreign countries? They are. It's run by a commission called the American Battlefield Monuments Commission. And basically, these are U.S. taxpayer paid for cemeteries on foreign soil. It's a strange arrangement, really. So there's, um, you know, 26 of them, I believe, in 16 different countries. And we own them. We run them. And they are these little oases oases on on foreign soil uh, where it looks like Arlington Cemetery or Fort Logan. And you just come upon them and they are run by Americans and they're perfectly manicured, beautiful cemeteries, uh, resting places a lot of people don't know about. I think even when you you travel to Europe, uh, you could drive by one of these places and not even know that it's there. Mm. And you largely travel to the ones in Europe, but as you say, they are around the world. They're in, they're in other places besides Europe. There are. There's a huge one in uh, the Philippines, and there's one in Tunis, Tunisia, which we tried to go to as part of this uh, documentary, but it turns out the logistics of that are pretty tough. They tend to frown upon a bunch of Americans with loads of camera gear showing up <laughs> in North Africa. One of the Colorado stories that you unearth is of a man named Maurice Rose. Yes. Who was he? So he was a native of Connecticut, actually born there, but his family moved here to Denver when he was about four years old. And so he's really a product of Denver, product of Denver public schools, went to East High School uh, and went to World War I and had a pretty stellar run there. And then when World War II came up, he went there, too. And he really rose up through the ranks. He became major general of the 3rd Armored Division, the big deal, really big deal. And he had success after success uh, all the way from North Africa into Europe. And uh, he really caught the attention of the higher-ups in the Army. There were big plans for him after the war. I think I think they thought he could really be a big deal. He was one of these guys who, uh, one of those uh, soldiers, or, or generals, I should say, who didn't lead from behind. He didn't stay back in a safe place. He was always at the front leading the troops. And so uh, he, you know, he caught the attention of uh, General Eisenhower, President Truman. He really was a big deal. He died in the waning days of the war, literally with just a few days to go. The World War II. The World War II. He um, was ambushed. His group was by a group of German tanks that came out of a forest. They pinned down the Jeep that he was in and he was shot 14 times. 
He was, I think, the highest ranking Jewish officer in World War II. He was. He's not one of these soldiers who embraced his Jewish background, to be honest with you. There's uh, these cemeteries. There's either a cross or a Star of David marker at, at, your, uh, at your burial site. He had the cross. And he, uh, for whatever reason, didn't really embrace his Jewish background. But he was the highest ranking Jewish officer and also one of the highest ranking people killed in the battlefield of the war. And Maurice Rose, that last name might be familiar to Coloradans. It sure is, yeah. He has this legacy that lives on to this day. When he died back at the end of the war, back here in Denver, it was front page news in the Denver Post and in newspapers all around the world. And I think this city was trying to figure out how to help honor his legacy. And it just so happens that at that same time, they were building a hospital on the east side of town. And so they thought, hey, this is a good way to honor Maurice Rose's legacy. So they brought in General Eisenhower to lay the cornerstone. And they had his own mom uh, help shovel the dirt. And now Rose Medical Center is named after this war hero. Maurice Rose. And he's buried, I think, in the Netherlands. Is that right? Yeah, he's yeah. buried at Margaret in Netherlands. In Italy, the Florence American Cemetery is the final resting place for about 300 soldiers from the 10th Mountain Division, the skiing soldiers of World War II. These men trained in Colorado, and uh, here's how they're described in your documentary. These guys did the impossible. Um, We took 3,000 trained skiers and another 5,000 volunteers and built one of the finest fighting forces in World War II. It developed into one of the best-known divisions of World War II. To help the fight in Europe, the U.S. Army took a ragtag bunch of skiers, mostly East Coast college kids, and shipped them off to train for mountain warfare at a place called Camp Hale. Camp Hale is an interesting location. It's a high mountain valley at about 9,600 feet in altitude, close to Leadville, Colorado, which is the highest altitude city in the U.S. It was the most expensive military camp built during World War II and encompasses uh, what is now the Ski Cooper ski area. Copper Mountain was part of it and backs up to what is now the Vail ski area. Camp Hill was a tough place to just exist because of the uh, weather conditions. You ever try sleeping out in the snow when you're told it's 40 below zero? And so these men trained in Colorado and they were key to helping win World War II, but they also really suffered big losses. Crucial uh, crucial role in winning the war, especially there in Italy. They, they fought back the Germans hard there, but yeah, it came at a tremendous price. About a thousand casualties, a uh, thousand guys died in all, three of them buried at that, at that cemetery in Florence. So they really have a unique and special tie, that cemetery does, to uh, the folks back here in Colorado. And there are still a few of them live, and I think, you know, I think it's pretty well documented the history of the 10th Mountain here in Colorado, but these guys not only changed the shape of the war, but they also came back home and changed Colorado forever, too, because as we said, these were East Coast college kids. They had trained at Camp Hale. They fell in love with Colorado. So after the war, those who survived, a lot of them came back here, settled in Colorado, and helped create the modern-day ski industry. I think, was your grandfather in the 10th Mountain? He was, yeah. He and was. Th- these were things I didn't really know until we started researching this uh, this documentary. I knew he was in the 10th Mountain, but, you know, as with every family, you hear these war stories and you don't know which are true and which are not. So the folks at the 10th Mountain um, Division Resource Center at the Denver Public Library did some research for me, and they found out all these details about him, including the fact that he'd been severely injured uh, in Italy uh, during one of the harshest parts of the campaign, and uh, and refused to get treatment. And he was driving his commanding officer through uh, an area that was being attacked with mortars and all kinds of live rounds. 
and he was uh, injured by the shock of a of a enemy blast, and so he uh, refused to get treatment until his commanding officer finally said, "Look, you've got to go get medical treatment," and he did. But uh, you know, he was a humble guy. He was a rancher in in Glenwood Springs, and and the kind of guy who would never brag about that sort of thing. So it took this for me to really know this family story and help fill in the gaps, even for my mom and my aunts and uncles. You met a woman who is a sort of caretaker of the Rhone American Cemetery in France. Her name is Alison Libersa. Yeah. Um, and uh, she's eager to document the stories of the veterans who are buried there. But 60 or so at that American Cemetery in France are a mystery, as you report. They're the unknown soldiers. These ones are really special to me because their parents didn't know what happened to them. I put myself in the place of their mums. I'm sad because I love to tell the stories of the people that are here, but with them I cannot tell their stories because I don't know what happened to them. No one does. Each cross carries this phrase. Here rests in honoured glory a comrade in arms, known but to God. So there are soldiers who are unknown. And as you said a bit earlier, Jeremy Hubbard, the cemeteries abroad are largely unknown to many. Do families visit them? I mean, it must be it must be tough, right? I think about my mom visiting my grandfather's grave in a in a veteran cemetery. That's it's local, you know. It's not far away, but right. to be across the sea from where someone is buried is Le- such yeah. a different experience. Logistics are hard. We interviewed a woman named Layla Allah. She's ninety three years old. She lives in a nursing home in Montrose. And her brother was killed uh, in, in the war and buried at Sicily, Rome, American Cemetery, which is about 40 miles south of Rome on the shore of the Mediterranean Sea. She's never been. Nobody from the family has ever been. And she's only ever seen pictures. In fact, the video we shot from that cemetery is the very first video she's ever seen. So the logistics are tough. And there are some cases where uh, the soldiers were initially buried there and then brought home later on. Oh, thanks for being with us. You bet. Jeremy Hubbard, evening anchor at Fox 31 in Denver. His new documentary is called Where Heroes Rest. It airs on that station Saturday afternoon at 3.30. You can watch it online right now. Head to cprnews.org. Coming up in this Veterans Day special, they say there are no atheists in foxholes. We find out that's not the case from one Colorado vet. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Scott Harrison of Netherland doesn't believe in God, not after what he experienced in Vietnam. He was 19 when he shipped out to replace someone who was killed in action, he says. Harrison soon found himself in the siege of Can Tien, a deadly attack on a U.S. Marine base. Here is an excerpt of an essay he wrote. Rockets were raining down outside the Marine outpost of Can Tien on a late afternoon. They were coming from the North Vietnamese Army across the DMZ. As usual, when the rockets screamed down too close to me, I was yelling at God to get himself down here and help me, now, or it would be too late. He must have been listening because the rocket stopped, and I had not received a scratch. But I'm kidding here about how he was listening to me. He was not even in the area. As I lifted myself out of my hole, I saw pieces of Marines everywhere. I saw others with their hands reaching up, calling for the corpsman, screaming like the rocket's head. Ever since that day, I have stopped asking him for stuff. If he couldn't come down to help out a few dying Marines, I didn't see why we should continue our friendship. As it was with God, so it was with his preachers. 
About three months later, our platoon had been in some serious firefights in an area south of Kantian and north of the abandoned village of Kamlo. Several marine companies were in the midst of a small campaign to take this or that hill. I don't remember. It didn't matter then, and it doesn't matter now. As we left the perimeter in the early pre-dawn hours, I noticed a Catholic priest standing at the barbed wire, talking to each of the Marines as they passed by him on their way out of camp. He said something to me as I passed, and apparently they were the same words he was giving everybody, and he was giving the sign of the cross. I whispered to the Marine behind me, who was looking very scared, and asked him what the priest had said to him. He said the priest was giving last rites to everybody leaving on the patrol. Amazing. Here we were, leaving on one more routine patrol, and what? Did this priest know something we didn't? Did the captain ask him to come over and stand there and make sure that everybody knew they will likely be killed that day? That's the effect it had on the Catholics. I can't imagine what good that priest thought he was doing for those boys. Scott Harrison of Nederland was a corporal in the Marines during the Vietnam War. He'd served seven months when a piece of grenade went through his leg and tore an artery, sending him home. Harrison then dedicated the rest of his life to human rights, working for Amnesty International. He is also the man behind the Carousel of Happiness in Nederland, with animals he carved by hand. He'll read his essay alongside others who served at an event called Veteran Voices. Sunday, November 20th at the Boulder Public Library. You can read his full essay, God is a No-Show, at cprnews.org. In Idaho Springs, west of Denver, there's a nine-foot statue of a man who never lived. It's a cartoon carved in stone, writes Matt Masick. He's editor of Colorado Life magazine, and welcome to the program. Hi there. What is this statue of? This is Steve Canyon. He was a, an ace fighter pilot in World War II. Then he, after the war, he uh, went on all sorts of adventures as sort of a freelance adventurer. Thing is, he wasn't actually real. He was a cartoon. He was the star of the Steve Canyon cartoon strip. Came out in 1947. Okay, lots of questions that raises. I mean, first of all, why would you build a statue to a cartoon character? Is there some Idaho Springs connection to this? No Idaho Springs connection whatsoever. So back in 47, Steve Canyon was the hot new cartoon guy on the scene. Kind of the Calvin and Hobbes of its day or something? Not quite. He was a tad more heroic than that. Uh, this was right after World War II. People were on a patriotic crest and really wanted to honor service members who had returned to the community. And uh, that's what Steve was. He, he started out as a, a fighter pilot, and then uh, he kind of integrated back into society but kept that adventurous spirit of, of the warriors going. I see. So he's really a symbol of so many of the troops who have returned. That's right. And at that same time, the city of Idaho Springs was trying to revive its Gold Rush Days Festival, which had sort of gone on hiatus during the Depression and the war. And so the local junior chamber of commerce thought, 
well, we need to get people excited about our gold rush days. Why don't we latch on to some other person's fame? How about <laughs> Steve Canyon? We'll rename Squirrel Gulch Steve Canyon. And so uh, that's how the connection began. And then I guess you've created the local connection and you can erect a nine-foot statue. Right. They invited uh, Steve Canyon's creator, Milton Kniff, to their gold rush days, and they put out a big production. They invited the governor. Everybody in town turned out. Everybody was real excited uh, to have Milton Kniff, the famous cartoonist, come to inaugurate Steve Canyon, the canyon. And then three years later, this has gotten a lot of press uh, nationally. The president of the Indiana Limestone Company read an article that said Idaho Springs wants to erect some kind of marker to really solidify this connection to Steve Canyon. And he said, well, I'll, I'll donate a nine-foot limestone statue. Hmm. And so uh, they had another big production. Uh, the governor came out again for this big dedication. And at that dedication in 1950, the mayor of Idaho Springs said, this statue of Steve Canyon is going to put Idaho Springs on the map of the world, believe me. Did it save their festival? Like, did it bring butts in the seats? Oh, yeah. It it really revived the festival. They even thought about calling it Steve Canyon Days. Such was the connection. So it, it accomplished that goal, at least in the short term. Okay. You write that some residents balked at the idea of honoring a cartoon character. So what finally swayed them? That's right. People said, we don't have uh, a statue of our town founder or any other thing. Why <laughs> should we have a cartoon character? And, and so... Uh, They thought about it and they said, well, this isn't going to be just for Steve Canyon. This is a monument honoring all military airmen who served in World War II and are prepared to serve again. Keep in mind, this is just a few months before the outbreak of the Korean War. I see. And so it takes on a bit more of a hefty symbol. Right. It is a a patriotic symbol honoring uh, our military airmen. And a cartoon character. And a cartoon character. Yeah, Steve Canyon, not not much of a name these days. When did it stop publishing? Well, it actually continued publishing until 1988, but uh, it sort of lost its initial charm after uh, a few years. It wasn't quite as popular as it was in its early years. They probably would have been better off honoring Snoopy if they wanted to go for a longevity. <laughs> okay. Uh, finally, you say the only people who give this statue uh, any thought, really— are high school students. Right. At homecoming, uh, Clear Creek High School, uh, they come and dress him up in all manner of hilarious costume. Uh, But people do respect Steve as sort of like a member of the community. It's not an honored hero so much as, oh, there's Steve. Hi, Steve. You can see Steve at our website, cprnews.org. Matt, thanks so much. Thank you. Matt Masick, editor of Colorado Life magazine. He wrote about Idaho Springs' Steve Canyon statue. And this veteran special continues in a moment on Colorado Matters. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Maynard Kennedy, who lives in Del Norte in the San Luis Valley, has been to the Korean Peninsula more than two dozen times. And he'd go back again in a heartbeat, which might come as a surprise given his first trip to Korea. In the last days of November 1950, 12,000 men of the 1st Marine Division, along with a few thousand Army soldiers, found themselves trapped high in the mountains of North Korea, near a reservoir called Chosin. Their leaders had been caught off guard by the sudden entrance of the People's Republic of China into the five-month-old Korean War. As a Marine platoon sergeant, Kennedy was on the front line during the Battle of Chosin, a two-week campaign considered one of the most brutal in U.S. military history. What was supposed to be an uneventful mission just after Thanksgiving 1950 was anything but 
as 12,000 U.S. and U.N. troops waged a relentless battle against more than 100,000 Chinese soldiers. The fight is the subject of an American Experience documentary being streamed at PBS.org. Maynard Kennedy spoke with my colleague Nathan Heffel. Mr. Kennedy, welcome to the program. Well, thank you very much for uh, allowing me the the uh, pleasure and opportunity to uh, to speak about the battle. It's been more than 65 years since the Battle of Chosen, but even today, it's never very far from your mind, is it? I'm here uh, and and willing to uh, to talk with you today about uh, about it, even though it does uh, trigger. Uh, anxieties and so on uh, after uh, 66 years. I feel I owe it to the men in my platoon who were killed. They, uh, we've got to keep the story out there, and, um, and uh, I appreciate this opportunity. One of the ironies of Chosen is that when you moved into Korea, it was regarded as a, a nothing mission. General MacArthur, who was leading the charge for the Americans, said they'd be in and out. It was just, quote, a few Chinese laundrymen in this area where you're going to be. Yes, absolutely. And that was uh, that was terrible. I mean, we, we started running in as we were going north. Uh, we thought we were just wrapping up the war. The Marines came in at Incheon and then... Um, and then that uh, broke the, all of the supply lines uh, to the uh, North Koreans who were south of us then. And um, we cut, had them cut off, and uh, we thought, well, okay, it's a cleanup operation. What was it like you know? leading up to this battle personally for you? Were you excited? Were you nervous? Well, I knew winter was coming on. <laughs> and so... Uh, being a Michigan boy, I, I knew something about cold You were weather. kind of prepared, probably. Uh, yes, and, and as a matter of fact, my, a lot of men up there lost both of their feet. Oh. Uh, many of them, their, their old hands, they lost their hands. So you weren't well and, equipped uh, for the weather? No, no, we were, uh, because there was no anticipation uh, of, of uh, an extended uh, winter campaign. We fought two things. We fought the Chinese and we fought the weather. And we went up there with uh, what we called Mickey Mouse boots. They were rubber, had a felt insole, but your feet would sweat. And then, the, you know, the, the cold would do, uh, your feet would be freezing. Uh, fortunately, being, as I say, for Michigan, I kept three pair of socks and I rotated them uh, all, all, day, all day and night. Um, and I kept two inside of my parka to dry out and uh, a pair on my feet, and then I would rotate them every six, seven hours. It was regularly 30 below zero at night. 30 below zero. Yes, and uh, it was windy as can be. And uh, I've heard uh, uh, meteorologists uh, say that we were at times uh, fighting out at, at 70 believes below zero and that's why so many of us were cold damaged i read we were damaged uh, i've got part of my nose that had to be repaired and uh and as i say i have no feeling in my feet i just have some buzzing and pain and uh i don't get nerve impulses from my feet to my brain and so i don't know where my feet are at and I have to use a walker or two canes uh, at all times or a wheelchair. When did you realize that this was not what you were told it was going to be? Well, I think about November 28th or 29th, uh, 
that we had a massive assault from the Chinese, and that was unexpected. <clears throat> they they hid in, they hid uh, during the day uh, in the uh, in the in the forest, and then attacked us uh, that first night. And we didn't have any wire out uh, or or anything to prevent them from coming into our um, our uh, our area. Well, like security and, barbed uh, wire or something like that. Yes, we finally. Well, within a day or two, we had wire, and uh, and at night um, when the Chinese were attacking us, as they did the first night, uh, they would get hung up in the wire. And then uh, those behind would uh, would crawl over the bodies that were hung up in the wire, but they kept coming in uh, what was what was commonly called hordes of Chinese. It was overwhelming uh, because we had we were completely uh, uh, not we weren't expecting that, uh, and so then we went into some really hellish uh, times. Some of the Marines in the documentary say MacArthur was outmaneuvered by by the Chinese. What do you think about that? I've got uh, several views that uh, uh, run through my head for the last 66 years. There was a feeling that MacArthur wanted to open it up uh, to a a full-blown assault, uh, an attack on mainland China. President Truman, bless him, is so because he... He later uh, turned down the notion of using atomic weapons, no, nuclear weapons up there. Uh, MacArthur wanted to use them, I'm told. That was scary uh, because uh, that could well have led to a, uh, a all-out war with the Soviet Union, who did uh, have nukes at that time. Uh, and there was a lot of politics going on, too, that we didn't understand about. Uh, and... It, uh, we were there to fight, you know, to uh, quit ourselves uh, as well as we could under the conditions, and uh, and we did. Although we lost, we paid heavy, heavy penalties with the numbers of dead, 85% casualties. Um, and, and those of us survivors, the, um, the VA uh, totaled me up uh, with... Uh, uh, 240% disability, which of course you can't have, uh, you'd be dead, I suppose. But, but counting my feet, my hands, my face, and 100% for PTSD. And many of us, uh, including me, in the early days of, uh, of, of dealing with it, uh, turned to alcohol as it, uh, you know, it would ease the pain and so on. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel, and we're talking with Marine Sergeant Maynard Kennedy of Del Norte, Colorado. Kennedy was a participant in the Battle of Chosin, the subject of an American Experience documentary streaming now on PBS.org. Let's listen to another clip from the program and a Marine reflecting on the second night of the battle. I prayed that night for the first time in my life. God... Don't let me die. Not here, not this far from home. I just want to see the sun come up one more time. Just give me another day. How often during the height of this battle did you wonder if you would survive? 
every day, every day. Once, once the thick of the battle started, every day, and that's day after day during the during the battle. There were times when we were uh, uh, overrun, and uh, we would have Chinese uh, within our uh, within our perimeter area behind us and in front of us, uh, and uh, and those uh, those those days of that close in fighting. Uh, boy, I'll tell you, it uh, left you pretty shaky, uh, and, and just the trauma of of seeing the dead, uh, both uh, uh, Chinese and uh, uh, American Marines. There was a moment was... when some of your fellow veterans spoke of having to leave fallen soldiers and fall, uh, fallen Marines behind. Why was that especially yeah. true for you? I'll tell you a story about that. Um, we 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 made every every effort to to get all of our Marines out, dead or uh, badly wounded. Um, but uh, we had run out of uh, of vehicles to carry them. Uh, we we had truckloads of dead Marines, frozen in grotesque uh, shapes. A bulldozer operation. They first had to uh, 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 use explosives to break the ground because at those temperatures it was like concrete, and uh, bulldozed uh, that uh, uh, pit. And then about I think it was about 126. Uh, that's the number I remember. Uh, Marines were dropped into that pit and covered over. I was less than a hundred yards away uh, from. From that activity, when it, and and it, it just brought you out know, to my gut that we can't do this, but we did had to. Three of those were very good buddies of mine. About um, oh twenty years ago, uh, we have we have a national organization called the Chosin Few, and I decided that we ought to have a chapter here in Colorado, and I asked a friend of mine, uh, Tom Foley. Uh, if we could go to lunch and talk about that. Before we talked about establishing our organization, uh, we sort of reminisced about the battle. And uh, I said, Tom, you know, the most traumatic thing for me uh, was the burying of those Marines in that uh, terrible frozen pit. And he started to cry. And I said, Tom, uh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to trigger you. He said, I was the bulldozer driver. And you say those stories still haunt you, but you've been back to Korea several times. How hard was it going back the first time? Well, I had uh, written a couple of books. I authored some books that uh, were being adapted by countries around around the world, actually. And um, and Korea was uh, uh, wanting to use those books. Well, we insisted that they adapt them to local flora and fauna and conditions and so on. Well, I'm a biologist, by the way, a geneticist. And um, when I got to the airport, they picked me up, took me to my hotel. And now this was in the 60s. Uh, 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 took me to uh, my hotel. And I wouldn't leave that hotel. I just couldn't. I, I was so uptight. 
And then they would come and pick me up, take me to the university, and I'd work the day, and then and, and they'd take me back to the hotel, and I'd stay there. Then the next day, they'd pick me up and so on. And then after four or five days, they took me back to the airport, and I left. Uh, and that whole experience uh, really uh, shook me up. And I was uh, asked to come back and to come back. And uh, it was it, it became um, a relief for me in many ways to go back and and see the the, the continued growth. Uh, the people in South Korea are the older people are so gracious and 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 uh, and and uh, thankful. And I can't tell you, you'd wear your hand out, shaking hands and, uh, and so on. And uh, we'd be asked to go to homes, uh, my wife and I. Uh, we'd be on a bus, uh, maybe going out somewhere. And uh, I remember one time an older lady uh, in, sitting in front of us turned around and said, uh, you're American, aren't you? I said, yep. Were you here during the war? I said, yes, I fought in the war. She said, thank you, thank you. Could you come to our home for dinner tonight? You know, it wasn't it wasn't like, you know, a moth attracted to a candle or uh, however you want to express it. It was just the, the the I felt it almost an obligation. Now, the battle, of course, happened in North Korea above the 38th parallel. Right. You've not been back there. You can't go back there. Is that correct? Uh, well, we were able to we were able to go up. For instance, I fought in seven more battles after the Chosen, and um, and we were able to go up to the DMZ and uh, and up to the Punchbowl area where one of my last battles uh, uh, happened, and um, and so while we couldn't walk over into North Korea, uh, uh, there's an area where you can go into the to the to the rooms where the uh, uh, the armistice was uh, uh, was uh, completed, and uh, and so, uh, but there was a North Korean side to that building and a South Korean side to that building. You dare not step over that that line, and and, and the the North Koreans would be peering through the windows at us with the meanest looks, you know, on their face. And uh, we were well instructed not to to keep our hands in our pockets or at our side, never to uh, do anything that would uh, uh, incite a, uh, some kind of a, 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 an event. That kind of shook me up a little bit going up there. But, of course, when I was over there, I wanted my wife to see it or I wanted my son or dog. Uh, virtually all of my children have been to Korea with me. Uh, that is of, of uh, eight children. Uh, now with the film, uh, my children, uh, three of them have not watched it. They said, Dad, we saw what the war did to you. And uh, I don't want to see anything of it. I'm talking with you today, even though I had second thoughts about it when I was uh, asked, because I, I just didn't know if I was going to be up to it to get triggered again and to and to go back into a cycle, we simply must uh, keep alive the memory of to uh, give people an appreciation. Mr. Kennedy, thank you so much for joining us. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you.
Korean War veteran Maynard Kennedy of Del Norte in the San Luis Valley fought in the Battle of Chosin about this time of year in 1950. The two-week encounter is the subject of a documentary streaming at pbs.org. It will also air on Colorado Public Television November 20th at 8 p.m. When we come back, veterans discover the healing power of a bicycle. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Back with Colorado Matters from CPR News, I'm Ryan Warner. The invisible wounds of war, PTSD, depression, were things Michael DeOanna tried to make more visible. He's a former print reporter who's now in public radio. And he learned about veterans who found healing on bicycles. Bicycling is great because no matter what kind of injury you have, mental or physical, amputee, burn, one arm, no arms, one leg, no legs, there's a bicycle that can be built for you to ride. Not only that, but you can take all those different guys, throw them in a group, and they can go on down the road together, and they're all equal. That is from Deoana's award-winning documentary, Recovering. I spoke with him last year. Michael, welcome to the program. Hi. You are also a cyclist. Uh, you heard about these veterans who cycle. And so you head to the Warrior Games in Colorado Springs. This is an adaptive sports competition for wounded warriors. And that's where you met really the main character in this film, Sergeant First Class Justin Minyard. He was part of a prestigious army outfit that guards the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, that also escorts the president. Minyard was called to the Pentagon on 9-11 after Flight 77 flew into the building. And um, his account is one of the most harrowing I have heard about the aftermath. I have these big blank spots, but there's these things that I remember that I'll never forget. And one of them I think about, and that's something that's in my nightmare sometimes, is us just running through corridor after corridor after corridor, and there's nobody. And it's getting smokier and smokier, and we're just... It's like screaming ourselves hoarse. If there's anybody in here, please make a noise, yell. Ceilings are floors. Walls are on top of ceilings. There's live electrical wires going off everywhere. I want to explore his story before we talk about him cycling. During the rescue at the Pentagon, a wall collapsed on him, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. Justin was injured very badly um, in that, um, on 9-11, and the days ensuing that. I mean, he was there for days and days. And um, then he deployed to the war. and Right. That wasn't enough. The injury sustained at the Pentagon wasn't enough. He went on to fight. That's right. He went on to fight. He fought um, in the war and um, his injuries caught up with him, but it took years. It took years for them to catch up with him. And he um, did what a lot of soldiers do. He kept pushing forward until his body finally gave up on him. He did tours in both Iraq and Afghanistan. That's right. right. That's right. Um He is also consumed with guilt because of what happened at the Pentagon. Uh, He becomes 
and this is in part I suppose because he, there were people he just couldn't rescue, and that weighs weighs heavily on him. That's right. Um, you know, I mean, he talks in that clip about running through the hallways. There's nobody there, but eventually he does um, come up on bodies, um, people who are missing appendages, uh, people who are burned very badly, and a woman um, who he tries to save. And um, he can't. He can't get to her. But she's alive, and she's talking to him, and she's burning, and she dies. I think a lot of people don't know the details of what a lot of uh, soldiers go through. And that was the purpose of this film, was to explore that and say, well, what, what is it that causes post-traumatic stress disorder, for example? And that's something that Justin uh, suffers, suffers from, and many other soldiers, a signature wound of the war. Right. So he's got PTSD. He has the guilt that you've described. He's got the physical injuries after which he had surgery um, and then, in a way, ran his body into the ground serving in these theaters. And then um, he becomes addicted to painkillers. And you find him at the point where he's been introduced to cycling, and he told you that it saved his life. I feel more natural when I'm on the bike than when I'm off of it. It's kind of how I deal with stuff. I wish I could have it with me all the time to where it'd be as convenient as taking a Xanax. As convenient as taking a Xanax. Um, That stands out to me because I don't think of cycling necessarily as a pain-free sport. (laughs) Right. But it becomes a replacement or at least a supplement for painkillers for some of these guys. Yeah. And it's an interesting thing with Justin because we start the film really at a point, a high point for him. Um, He's basically where you'd say he's recovered. Um, He's on a bicycle. He's lost a lot of weight. um, And he's off the painkillers. And the reason why... Um, Well, one of the big reasons why is because he's bicycling. And we talked to his doctor and his doctor says, well, um, you know, uh, bicycling can be a replacement in some ways or or any kind of strenuous sport um, for drugs, for these painkillers, because you're really um, the endorphins. Yeah, you're you're activating the body's own um, painkilling system. Yeah. Huh. And, and many other veterans that you talk to experienced this. Justin organized uh, a memorial ride in 2011 to commemorate the 10th anniversary of 9-11. Uh, tell me about this ride and, and what motivated him to do it. Well, obviously, you hear him going into the Pentagon. And so years go by. He's recovered. He's on a bicycle. And he's riding with these big, massive groups in this nonprofit that's called Ride Recovery. And that's, we embedded with them for the film. And uh, Justin says, well, let's do a 911 mile ride from Fort Bragg in North Carolina, where he's stationed to um, New York City. And we'll link up with this other large group that's then going to go to the three sites of the 911 attacks. 911 miles of cycling. He's going to do this with other veterans. Yeah, his good buddies. But Justin doesn't get to do the ride. Um, He had a relapse in his condition, and his doctors told him he couldn't ride anymore. But the rest of the group insisted on completing what they termed the mission. So you followed them, and it was not an easy ride. 
Oh, no, not at all. We went through the tail end of a tropical storm, a, a hurricane, uh, Hurricane Irene, and then, then it was a, turned into a tropical storm. There was flooding. Bridges were out. Um, days and days and days of cold, wet, windy riding. Did they ever want to give up? No. no. And that's, that's why I say this film, in a way, is a melodrama. Because, uh, you know, I mean, the difference between – you're right. They call it a mission. But the difference between a, a military mission and a mission for your friend on a bicycle is very different. I mean, you, you could say, hey, today the rain is too tough. There, this, is, this part of the road is flooded out. We can stop. Let's just give it up. But they would not give it up. And they decided they're going to ride every mile for Justin. There was even a collision along the way. Yeah, what happened was uh, three of the riders went down. One of them uh, broke a hip. Uh, the other one was hurt badly, but then reappeared and was able to ride through. But two guys hauled off in an ambulance. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Michael DeYuana. He's a filmmaker in Denver whose new documentary is called Recovering, and it is about veterans. Um, who have found a path to healing on two wheels, uh, on bicycles. And as we heard in the introduction, bicycles are really adaptable, and it's why they work so well for veterans with various sorts of injuries, uh, including those that don't have use of their legs and who ride using their hands. That's right. They'll ride on hand cycles, but... Um, there's an adaptive uh, an adaption that's been made for them, and there's a push bar on the back of the bicycles. And what this allows, you know, they call these these bikes, these recumbents and um, hand cycles, they'll call them low riders. Yeah. And you've probably seen them uh, on, the, on the bike path Indeed. yourself. And, and um, they'll put a push bar on the back of that. They just went to Home Depot. They got a, a square bar, um, got some uh, hose clamps, clamped it to the bicycle, put some bicycle tape around the top of it, um, and then the rider can go up and uh, put his right hand on that bar and help push the other rider. Oh, I see. So the, the riders on two wheels, on the maybe the upright bikes, are helping push those who are hand cycling, which presumably would become exhausting after a while using your hands, not your legs. Right. I mean, for a hand cyclist to get up to the top of a mountain, it takes a long, long time. And for some, it might be impossible. But now, uh, with the help of another rider... Um, it helps them get to the top. And you'll see uh, chains of riders. They'll put their hands on each other's back and help each other up some very, very steep climbs. And uh, the friendship that's built from that and the camaraderie and the, um, and the, the bonds between people who have uh, disabilities that you can see and those who have disabilities that you can't see is just incredible. I wonder if you, as a documentarian, as a journalist in this environment, ever considered whether you'd push the hand bar, you know? Yeah, well, that happened to me. I got, uh, let's just say I got pulled into it and I didn't want to be. I, you know, my initial idea for doing this film was I'd be uh, in a van following these rides along, sipping lukewarm coffee, looking off at horizon, squinting at this and that. Uh, but um, what happened was they said, will you ride? Uh, with us today? And I said, well, sure. And it wasn't long before I ended up um, in a situation where I was forced to help push because 
there's a rider who's making a right turn coming up a big hill. There's a huge crowd of bicycles behind him, and he screams over to me, Mike, a little help. And I was like, uh, okay. So I found myself pushing riders. Was this a way also, though, of um, getting closer to them and getting them to open up perhaps about this stigma because there's a lot of stigma around PTSD and talking about it. It was one of the only ways I could get close to the the low the low riders. I mean, you, you have to be right next to them to talk to them. And if you're right next to them, the push bar is right there. So um, I not only was pushing, I was talking and learning uh, so much, so much about um, healing uh, PTSD, traumatic brain injury, so much about what it's like to live with a lost limb, for example. Thanks for being with us, Michael. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much. Denver filmmaker Michael DeOanna, formerly a producer at Colorado Public Radio. He's now head of news at KUNC in Greeley. We spoke last year about his documentary, Recovering, and you can watch a trailer at cprnews.org. That's our Veterans Day special, thinking of my Grandpa Pete, who served in the Air Force. I'm Ryan Warner, CPR News.